0: It's um, a good night to be going through Romans and to uh, get launched and get started, and uh, I'm glad we've got the doors open. Allow that 10-degree temperature differential and all that bad fire air out there. Help us breathe well. All right. Why don't we open with a uh, word of prayer? We can use all the help we can get. Heavenly Father, we thank you Uh for who you are. You're a good and gracious God. You've been kind to us and you have filled our lives with good news, the good news that your son is Lord of all and that because of him we have an opportunity to have a new life free from the reign of sin and death and we have this opportunity to gather here this evening. We think of believers around the world who are not able to gather together freely, whether it's because of natural disasters or persecution or legislation, and we lift them up to you. We lift up our brothers and sisters in Colombia as well, in the church in Pereira, and we pray, Lord, that you would encourage and strengthen them, that they would grow in the delight and knowledge that though this world is fallen, Your good news prevails and you're doing a good work. And in your time and in your way in Christ, you will make all things right. We just ask for your help this evening. Lord, for us, would you soften our hearts? Would you open our ears? Would you open our eyes? Would you enable us to behold the beauty, Lord Jesus, of who you are and how you've loved us and what you've accomplished? And may our hearts be filled with faith and trust. In a God who is good, a shepherd who is gracious, and a king who is victorious. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to start a little bit just by reminding us, as you see, we've got our Logos slide. And we're going to enter into our study in Romans, the first chapter of Romans this evening. But why are we studying Romans? And it really comes back to what Logos is, that... Greek word, which means the word, and it is what sets apart this ministry, and it begins really with John 1.1, 1, 1. in the beginning was the word, that everything in creation and in this universe begins and ends with the word of God, and that includes our lives, our natural lives, but especially our spiritual lives as well. And so Lagos is, we want to be reminded, very much a shepherding ministry for the members of the church, for those who are disciples of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to shepherd our hearts with the word of God. And as we consider why we do this, why the primacy of the ministry of the word and prayer, we need look no further than the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He comes and he makes the statement in Matthew's gospel. He lets us know what he thinks of the written word of God and its role in our lives. He says in Matthew 4, 4, and he's speaking to the devil who is coming and tempting him with bread when he's hungry. He says, it is written, graph, a man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds or that comes from the mouth of God. And in this way, our Lord and Savior shows us that the written words of Scripture are inspired. They've come from the very mouth of God. And these words are necessary. They're necessary for life, not only spiritual life, but physical life as well. It's God's Word that created everything. It's God's Word that holds everything together. And it's God's Word that is going to say, when your journey and my journey on this earth is over it is essential, it is necessary, it is sufficient. And so we have to consider every aspect of our lives, our work, our relationships, our parenting, our marriages, every aspect of our lives needs the Word of God. And it needs the Word of God not just because we need more information, but our Lord and Savior goes on to point out this word is a word of power. And he says in Matthew five eighteen in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law, and that's the written word of God in the Old Testament, until all is accomplished. And hopefully for us this should be an encouragement. It testifies to the truth that our God is a faithful God. He does everything that he has promised. He doesn't just idly throw words out there. That his word and the presence of his word in our lives is powerful because it is backed by God. It is all-powerful. It is inerrant, without error, the slightest jot or tittle, the dotting of the I's, the crossing of the T's, the equivalent in the Hebrew Bible, those tiny pen strokes, none of it is by accident. And every aspect of God's word, inerrant, without error, infallible, it cannot fail, authoritative, and infinitely powerful. Now, that's hard for us because that seems contrary to our experience because we live in a world where we recognize only what we can see. We can't see God. God is a spirit. Doesn't exist. So we came from apes, right? All the different ages, Stone Age, all the different skulls that are out there, we we can only quantify what we see. The only thing that's powerful is what we can see. Prove it to me. Let me see it. As I tell my boys, show me love, show me sensitivity, show me compassion, show me all of these different things that are essential to any relationship, which you cannot see at the beginning and you can only see the fruit at the end. We live in a world that craves for those things in relationships as you look at all the studies for relationships and why relationships break down and all the qualities that they list, the vast majority of them by the psychologists, initially those are invisible qualities that you can't see. You need to grow with your spouse. What does that look like? You need to mature. You need to have sensitivity for one another. All the things ultimately that get manifested in a life but in the beginning you can't see. So we live in a world that says God is ineffectual. His word is useless. The only thing I trust in is myself. I'm what's authentic. God's word comes and our Lord and Savior shows us and he shows us on the cross and through his resurrection well, actually, we have it backwards. That it begins with God and it ends with his word. And those who have God's word are a blessed people because his word is inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and powerful. And the church, over the last 2,000 years, is a testimony to that truth. And so this is why we focus on this ministry called Logos, which is all about having our hearts shepherded by God's word. And our aim in this ministry is to be pleasing to Christ. How? That we would rightly hear his word, that we would listen to it and receive it in the way he intended to give it to us, that we would rightly obey and live his word, but that we would also rightly share his word right? And I think we understand that within the context of a relationship, right? We understand that with our parents, our siblings, our family members. We understand what happens in a relationship even with our peers when we're not rightly listening. Julie says, I drive her crazy because I, I repeat frequently, pardon me, pardon me, what did you say? And it's usually when I'm sermon prepping and she's trying to say something to me and I didn't hear it the first time and second time because my mind was somewhere else. She says, okay, forget it. Right? I'm not rightly listening to her as my wife because there's something more important in my mind. Not good. My wife should take precedence, right? There's a time to stop and listen because of that relationship, because of who she is. I need to understand that these are not, this is just not a commercial or a radio show. These are the words of my wife. And I need to receive it as the words of my wife I need to respond appropriately, I need to live that, and obviously by extension with our boys, I need to model that, not come down on the, why don't you listen to your mother? Well, look at their role model, right? Need to grow, okay, in those areas. And as we come to our Heavenly Father, we need to rightly hear what he has to say. As we come to our Lord and King, we need our Savior Jesus Christ, we need to hear what he has to say because he loves us, and as we consider the Spirit who applies that word in our lives, we need to yield to him and say, okay, how do you want us to understand and how do you want us to respond to this? What are you doing and how can I follow your lead in our lives? And as we look at God's word, as we've said before, his word, Genesis to Revelation, this is God's love letter to his people. This is his testimony that we have a God who makes things right. He judges evil and destroys it, and he saves his people, and he does so by paying the price by sending his son to die on the cross. That is the good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's the gospel, and that, brothers and sisters, is what Romans is all about. Romans, if you will, takes the entirety of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and it puts it together for us and as we think about paul later writing to timothy he writes to timothy in second timothy 3 15 through 17 it's a passage that you're familiar with that talks about the inspiration of god's word and he lets timothy know as timothy's struggling he's having a hard time he's having a hard time in his working relationships in that church in ephesus and he reminds timothy where is strength and power to be found How are you able to endure the suffering for the sake of the gospel? Well, he reminds Timothy that the scriptures that he was taught by his mother and his grandmother as a child, the scripture, God's written word, is able to make Timothy wise for what? Salvation. To have a right relationship with God. And the scriptures are able to make the man of God, do you guys remember? It's able to make the man of God complete and pleasing to God by faith, equipped for every good work. Do you want to be someone who's pleasing to the Lord? Do you want to be saved? Do you want to be complete? The idea is mature, lacking absolutely nothing. God and his love has provided everything we need in Christ. And he's done so through the spirit and the word of God. They are able to make us. It doesn't mean our lives are easy. It doesn't mean our lives are simple. It doesn't mean we're not going to suffer like Christ, but it does mean Everything we need to be mature in Christ, everything we need to be pleasing to the Lord in every circumstance, God has given us and he's provided his spirit and his word to enable us to do this. And this is the good news of God's word. We are not a cult. You're not trying to develop special knowledge and going up the ladder in order to get a special method in order by the very end that you can be like Tom Cruise, right? wear the golden chain and be the superstar and be protected and everybody else is ponying up. It's the good news that every child of God, whether you're a new believer or an old believer, you have everything you need to have triumph over sin and to have a fellowship of joy and love and completeness with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and also with the people of God. And this is very much what the Apostle Paul is fleshing out in his epistle to the Romans. Could I have my next slide, please? Can you see that? There is a map of the Roman Empire. Why is the Apostle Paul writing this summation of the gospel, of everything that he believes in? Well, the date we believe he wrote it is around 56 to 58 AD. It's around 20 years after the Apostle Paul has been saved. And it's coming at the end of probably his third missionary journey. He is likely in Corinth. And he is dictating this letter to a scribe named Tertius, which is mentioned in chapter 16, common practice at that time. And he is writing this letter as he explains in the text of romans because he plans on going to spain he's going to spain not for the typical reason that most of us go to spain all right not for sun and vacation and um to enjoy some of the islands out there okay he's going to spain to fulfill his commission and his calling christ has confronted paul on the road to damascus Paul has been radically saved. This, if you would say the consummate Jew, Orthodox Jew, has been turned around 180 degrees and gone from persecuting the church and probably hating Gentiles to become, by Christ's commission, the apostle to the Gentiles. And he's been called to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. And now, having been through Asia Minor and being faithful to that, if you look, he's going from east to west. So if we look up here, facing this on the right-hand side, if you see Arabia on the bottom and Palestine, which is where Jerusalem and Israel is and where Christ was crucified, and then higher up is Syria and there's Antioch. The Apostle Paul has started in the area of Syria and Antioch in that first church plant where people were first called Christians. And he's gone up all through the east of the Roman Empire, what's referred to as Asia Minor now, modern-day Turkey, Macedonia, and Greece, right? And his aim, having planted churches in those areas and been faithful to the call through the east, all the way Jerusalem, Antioch, all the way through Macedonia, his aim and intent is now to go west to the farthest regions Of the Roman Empire to fulfill the Great Commission, right? To really, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the world. He's being faithful to the call to bring the gospel to the edges of the civilized world in Spain. In Spain, Portugal, you can see Hispania up here, all right, in the north of Africa, which is part of the Roman Empire, as well in the southern portion. And so his aim is to get to Spain. And as he moves towards Spain to fulfill his calling and his commission, his desire is to make a stop in Rome on the way to Spain because it's on the way. And Rome is an area that is filled with probably a number of house churches. And in those house churches, There are many people who Paul knows. They've been partners of the gospel who have been kicked out of Jerusalem or kicked out of Rome or kicked out of different areas, not Rome, but different areas where there's been persecution. And they've ended up in the capital. They've ended up in Rome and they brought the gospel with them. And there are gospel churches there that Paul did not plant. And yet he has many partners in ministry when you read chapter 16 and many friends who are there. And so he's on his way. There's this community that's filled with people he knows, but they're filled with many people he does not know. And yet it's a growing community of faith, a growing church, if you will, made up of all these different house churches. And their faith is known throughout the empire. And Paul's desire is to spend time with them on his way to Spain. And his heart is burdened. He wants to have fellowship with them. He wants to encourage them. He wants to be encouraged with them. He wants to spend some time with them. He lets them know in chapter 15, hey, I'm not coming to be your pastor. I'm not coming to build on someone else's foundation. But I do want to encourage you and preach to you the gospel. And I do want to be encouraged to see firsthand what is going on in your church. And I do want us to be part of this gospel ministry because Christ has given it to us. Because I have a ministry to the Gentiles. You're part of that. And I want to share this ministry with you and for us together to be part of this ministry to go to Spain. And as he does this, he sends this letter in advance. He wants to let them know up front that he's coming, but he also wants to let them know who he is, what he represents, what he stands for, so that when he comes, they're not freaked out. Is this guy safe? Is he not safe? Does he believe the same things that we do, all the schisms, all the problems that are going on in the early church? So he writes in advance, And he lets them know, if you will, it's like a CV or a resume. He's letting them know up front, this is who I am. And who is the Apostle Paul? You can sum it up with one word. It's the gospel. This is what defines who the Apostle Paul is. This is what makes him tick. This is what is bringing him to Rome and then to Spain. Every aspect of his life. And then he spells it out in great detail. It's in some ways when you go to a church website and you see what we believe and it's listed and it's listed there in the website to let people know before they come, hey, before you walk through these doors, you need to know exactly where we stand, what we're about, who we are, nothing hidden and Paul in love wants to do that for them and in chapter one he really summarizes this and lets us know what he is all about. Can I have my next slide? Is that possible? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We're going to read 1 all the way to the end. Well, not to the end, to verse 17. And this is Paul's introduction to the letter, but it's also Paul's introduction to who he is and why he's coming to visit them. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. That without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also, As we come to the end, you, you can hear the Apostle Paul's explaining his heart, his heart for the church in Rome, those he knows, but those, what's amazing, people he doesn't know, but he's only heard of their faith, his desire to come, and then it all culminates in verse 16 and 17, those famous verses that you know that transformed the world in the Reformation with Martin Luther, and that in every subsequent era where there's been typically a revival in the church, it has been coming back. To those words it's been a recovery of what the gospel is that typically what happens is the church gets off track focuses on many other things and by God's mercy and grace when he brings us back he brings us back to what the gospel is to the truth of the gospel and the apostle Paul he uses this he brings it this is the summation of who he is and why he is coming and this is why he is eager to come and what ends up happening as he moves on, just as an overview, you're going to see that the rest of Romans is really unpacking the gospel. And so chapters 1 through 11, you can refer to as the foundations of the gospel. And verses 16 all the way back to 12, that last half and that last portion is really you could say about gospel worship. How do we live out the gospel in our marriages, in the city, in the local church, in fellowship with people who live far away? How do we live out those foundations of the gospel? He's unpacking this, but in this first chapter, he provides us with really the blueprint and the overview, the really big picture of what the gospel is. And how does he very specifically explain what the gospel is? He says in verse 16 it is the power of god for salvation to everyone who believes he says it is power it is god's power so what does he mean the gospel is god's power what is the gospel in a very broad sense okay that term in greek refers to good news it's the news of victory And it's the news of victory when a king has won a battle or a war. And when he has won a battle or a war and the enemy has been defeated and crushed and his people and his city or his state or his citizens are now safe and free. He officially commissions an apostle, a herald, an ambassador who is commissioned to take the message of the king and to run through all of the king's territories and to proclaim and announce to the citizens that the king has been victorious and the enemy has been defeated. And if anybody else runs through and says the king has been victorious, it's just a rumor. When the apostle comes, who is the officially sanctioned or commissioned messenger of the king, when the herald has come, it's a cause for celebration and joy where citizens rejoice, their enemy has been defeated, they are now safe, and they can live as free citizens of the king who has defended them and saved them. Now, that's the New Testament context. As we go back into the Old Testament, there is an equivalent. And the word good news is used repeatedly to refer to God's salvation of his people. And there's two sides to that salvation. It's God destroying what is evil and wicked in order to set his people free and deliver them. So there is deliverance and salvation, but there is also the destruction of what is evil and what is sinful. And a simple summation is it's the good news of God making things right. And so if You look at Psalm 40, verse 9, and Psalm 40, which many of you are familiar with, which is a psalm of salvation. Psalm 49 says, I have told the glad news of deliverance. Glad news or good news, the news that makes you celebrate. Psalm 40, I waited patiently upon the Lord. He heard my cry. He delivered me out of the pit. He took my feet out of the miry clay and he placed them firmly on a rock. God's salvation, much of which may foreshadow the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then as you go to Isaiah, Isaiah is just packed with references to the good news. If you have your Bibles, have a look at Isaiah 61.1. Isaiah 61.1. Isaiah 61.1 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Now you'll remember that because Jesus reads this during his gospel ministry. And people get really upset. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to what? Bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives. In the context of Isaiah, right, is the consequence for God's idolatrous people who have ignored God, they've lived like the nations, they pursued the wealth of the nations, they pursued the idols of the nations, and God has brought judgment upon them and they're living out the consequence. God keeps his promise. We're a covenant people, you're married to me, but if you choose to be unfaithful and go down this path, I'm gonna let you go, and I'm gonna let all those nations and all the people you want be your husband, be your master, and you're gonna live it out. And you're gonna live out the tyranny and brutality of what it means to have a wicked husband and a wicked spouse and a wicked king. And you're gonna see firsthand, but I'm not gonna abandon you completely if my people who are called by my name Humble themselves and they turn and repent and they come back to me. I'm going to hear their cry. I'm going to hear their prayer. I'm going to save them. I'm going to provide deliverance. And so these promises of salvation are an exhortation to God's people and to His remnant to return to Him, to trust Him, to be faithful, even in difficult times, to wait for Him that salvation is coming. God has a plan. He's not going to abandon his people. He's good for his promise. He's going to bring a Messiah, a king, a savior who's going to make things right, who's going to come and destroy all that is evil and wicked and deliver and save his people. And because of that salvation, there's going to be great joy among the people of God, but there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth of those who are wicked and evil. And this is put out there to encourage the people of God who are faithful, hang in there. Hang in there, right? And for those who are wayward to turn and repent and come to the Lord before it's too late because when he comes, if you don't belong to him, you're going to be destroyed. And this, of course, is some of what happened when Jerusalem is destroyed, Nebuchadnezzar comes, the temple is destroyed, and the Israelites are taken as captive and they are taken into exile. It's a foreshadow. It's a fulfillment of God's promise, and it's also a foreshadow of what's to come. So there's two sides to this good news. God is going to make it right. Now what about us? We think of our lives. We're waiting for the coming of Christ. And as we wait, we live in a time and era of injustice. And many times Christians get the short end of the stick. You get the short end of the stick in your job. You get the short end of the stick in relationships you get the short end of the stick. Maybe in your neighborhood, doing it God's way doesn't seem to pay off. And yet God's promise of salvation, his good news is meant to be an encouragement to say, you have a God who loves you. He has not abandoned you. He has a plan of salvation. There is gonna come a time where what people reap, they will sow. The Lord will destroy what is evil. He's going to take care of his people. He's done it every step of the way. The cross is a testimony that the Lord does this as is the resurrection. Hang in there and wait and see for the salvation of the Lord. And it's also a warning for wayward sheep who said, I'm going to do it the world's way. I'm going to do A, B, C, D, and E to bring them to a place of conviction, to say time is short, we don't know when God's judgment will happen. Here or later, now is the day of repentance. Now is the time to turn to the Lord. I think of a dear brother of mine. When we were in Southern California, he was living a full-out homosexual lifestyle. He had been an elder at a church and leading a double life and living and flying out to San Francisco on the weekends. Finally, he just departed completely ended up cohabitating and then was able to hear a sermon from Dr. MacArthur by the radio on Grace to You and told me while he was at work convicted that it was not right with the Lord, stood under the wrath and judgment of God and said, you know, I looked at it and said, you know, probably I was never saved at all but grew up in the church because there had never been any true repentance in my life, and was brought to that point by hearing the good news of Jesus Christ, but also the two sides, to be brought to repentance, and to turn, and be on his knees in prayer, and to reach out to the Lord, and to be saved, and through that, to be over days and weeks and months, to be completely brought out of that lifestyle, and the reign of sin in his life, and to see him years later, completely immersed, in a new life, in fellowship with the Lord and fellowship with others. And he was the one who brought to bear on me as I tried to shepherd young men and I talked to him about the battle for sexual purity. And he said, Mark, he said, it's it's 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 and 2. This is God's will for your life, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. He'd memorized that verse, he knew it, he'd lived it, why? because Christ had set him free from the bondage of lust and sin and death. And it was a truth that he celebrated, it was a freedom he enjoyed. Did he still battle? Yes indeed, but did he enjoy that freedom? Absolutely. And so we see, I hope with this example that you begin to see this message of the gospel that God has provided a way of salvation to conquer sin and death through the death and resurrection of his son. And he's made it available as a message of power because it brings people to repentance and it connects them with Christ as Lord of all who is able to set them free from the reign of sin and death in their lives. It is a message of power. Now, we don't think of messages as having power. But I think back to years ago, I was invited to a celebration dinner by a group of my college mates. we had been through undergraduate together. And I was invited out to go for lunch to celebrate with these men. What was the cause of celebration? Well, we would each that summer received a letter in the mail. What's the big deal of a letter in the mail? It was a letter that potentially changed all of our lives for the rest of our lives. It was our official acceptance into medical school that you look at that piece of paper. It's a piece of paper. I don't even know where it is. It's probably in the trash somewhere. What is it worth? Absolutely nothing as far as the paper's concerned. But what made that letter powerful is the person who wrote it the office of the registrar right and the message on that paper you have been accepted and that message on that paper had the power to change a life based on what faith would you accept that piece of paper and say yes i've been accepted So I'm going to move out and move and go and become part of this medical school and pursue this path. Or you can reject it and throw that piece of paper in the trash and I could still be living at home with my parents. Right? It's a message that has power, not because of the messenger or the vehicle or the paper on which it is written. It's because of the power of the message and it's the power of the one who has written that message. And this, brothers and sisters, is what Paul is talking about, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Because God says it, it is his offer of salvation, of freedom from sin and death, and a right relationship with God for those who by faith are willing to receive it. And as you go through the rest of Romans, Paul points out this is a message that every aspect of our lives needs, not just on Sundays. Our job lives need it, our relationships need it, our parenting needs it. Every aspect of our lives, God's offer of salvation is given to us. Will we, by faith, receive it? Well, Paul goes on and he provides the details of what this power of salvation is to everyone who believes in this message. He does it. He gives us the details in the beginning. And he shows us the power of this message. And in a nutshell, this message is that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. It's not a small God, not a tiny God, not a figment of our imagination. All power in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And he shows us that because of who Jesus is and what he has done, this is a message of power. And this is the message that every aspect of our lives needs to be connected with. And he walks through and he shows us this power and what stands behind this power in those opening verses from verses one through 15. Could I have my next slide, please? It begins, verse 1 those opening words, as you get it in a letter, it's typically referred to as the greeting. It's a letter he's writing. He writes the greeting. Hey, this is who this letter is from. Dear so-and-so, this is me. But Paul, obviously, with his greetings, does so much more. He's identifying who he is. And he's showing in those first, in that first verse, Paul is a new creation in Christ. What is the gospel? It's a message that transforms who we are. It's a message that by the power of God's word word makes us a new creation in Jesus Christ. And you see in that opening verse where he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He walks through three phrases, okay? And he walks through who his king is. Paul, a servant or really a slave of Christ Jesus. He is now bound not to the world, not to his sin, not to his dreams and aspirations. He is bound, he belongs to Jesus as his king. He is a new king. Called to be an apostle. So he goes through his calling. So he's gone through who his king is, He goes through what his relationship is, his primary relationship. Before we think of ourselves as husbands, do we think of ourselves as slaves of King Jesus? Before we think of ourselves as fathers, do we think of ourselves as slaves of King Jesus? Before we think of ourselves as engineers or doctors or lawyers, do we think of ourselves as slaves of King Jesus, bound to him? For the Apostle Paul, being bound to Christ was the greatest joy on earth. He was no longer a slave to his legalism and his respectable desires of the flesh and everything that had made him an incredibly destructive person. Called to be an apostle, the gospel and the power of this message has made Paul what he is. It has given him his calling, his calling to be an official ambassador of Christ Jesus an apostle, and then it goes on and it's given him a new purpose in life. Set apart for the gospel of God. Set apart, it means you are cut off from what you were attached to before. It means the entirety of your life is devoted to the good news of God. Brothers and sisters, what is your purpose? For years, my purpose was to be a physician. Right. what is your purpose well the power of the gospel in our lives is to give us a new king to give us a new calling no we're not quote-unquote apostles but we are called to share a message that has the power to transform lives and it gives us a new purpose a people who are set apart entirely for one purpose to be a living example and demonstration of the good news of Jesus Christ. And this is the Apostle Paul, right? You look at his life and you say, Christ indeed is risen from the grave. There's a transformation outside in, inside out that is undeniable. This man, it was a man of hate and pride and looking down at other people because they were religiously inferior, is now the humblest and most gracious apostle of God's love right? Gracious, kind, and willing to suffer for the sake of others. Why? Because he is set apart for the gospel. Every aspect of his life is a demonstration of the good news of Jesus Christ. And this is the power of the gospel. So we thank brothers and sisters of those who have suffered not because of anything perhaps that they have done, but suffered at the hands of others, people who have been through abusive relationships, people who have been through hard homes, people who have suffered in different places, whether they be refugees from other countries, and you see that the power that they need, yes, they can come to America. Yes, they can have a better life. Yes, they can remarry and maybe have a better spouse but everybody knows that those emotional scars don't change. Told you that story many times. My friend who escaped from Hungary when it was a communist country, and years later as he's living in Beverly Hills, food at the side of his bed because he always never knows whether he's gonna have to leave in the middle of the night or not have enough food to eat. we see the power of the message of the gospel. Over time, yes. Through the work of the Spirit, you no longer belong to your past. You now belong to Christ. You have a new task, and you have a new purpose in life. It's not to fix yourself, but to allow God to come in and fix you, and for you to have this purpose to place on display that you're a beloved child of God, Christ is doing a work in and it may be a slow work but he's doing it you have a message of hope that transforms because the Spirit of God is at work in you the power of being a new creation in Christ so Paul goes through the gospel is the power of a new identity and then in verse 2 through 4 he goes through the gospel witness what is very specifically the gospel what is this message And he writes, this is the gospel which he, God, promised beforehand. The gospel is the promise of God through his prophets in the holy scriptures. Verse 3, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. In a nutshell, the gospel is who God is and what God has done in Christ. The gospel is who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for his people by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's completely Trinitarian. And as you come into these words, you see that everybody who messes with the gospel, every cult messes with this. They mess with who Jesus is. The Jehovah's Witness, the Mormons, Islam, they all mess with who Jesus He's a prophet. He's a God. He is a created being. He's a higher being, but they all mess with that. They chip down at Jesus so we can be greater, right? They go through all that, every single cult. The gospel is about who Jesus is, that he is Lord of all. And it walks through God's promise. He is the fulfillment of God's promises, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's promise. Jesus Christ is the one who has come in the flesh, in the seed of David. He has given up everything and humiliated himself and walked this earth and walked our shame and walked through our paths in this evil fallen world and he did it for you and I. And he experienced death and an unjust death at the hands of wicked men who were religious men He rose again on the third day, and he was affirmed to be the Son of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, he's not saying here that he became the Son of God when he was resurrected. If you notice, verse 3, he says, This is the gospel which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son. Starts from the beginning. He is God's Son, even before he comes as the seed of David. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. In his incarnation, he comes as the seed of David. And then when he's talking about declared to be or set apart to be the Son of God in power, he is making reference to the affirmation of Christ's exaltation and the completion of his work for the Father, where he is exalted to the right hand of the Father, where all authority and power is given to him. So we think recently there's King Charles III, right? Was King Charles III the King of England? He was he always the son of Queen Elizabeth? Yeah, he was. Okay, but he becomes the king at his coronation upon the death of Queen Elizabeth. Okay, broken illustration. But as we look at what he's saying here, Jesus was always the son but it's through his sacrificial death on the cross and it's through his resurrection according to the promise of the Father. It is through his defeat of sin and death that God's path and word is fulfilled and Christ is exalted to the official King and Lord of all who has the power and authority to bring sinners into salvation and to set us free from sin and death. And this, brothers and sisters, is the good news. Christ is victorious over sin and death. And this leads us into verse 5 and 6, the gospel mission. The gospel mission, Paul writes, through whom, and this is through Jesus Christ, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. For the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. What's he talking about here? It's because of the good news that God's son has conquered sin and death, that he is the ruler and has authority and power over everything in heaven and on earth, that he is able To bring grace, God's unmerited favor, the forgiveness of sins, and freedom from sin and death to the worst of sinners. That's the good news. That's the gift of grace. And the gift of apostleship, which he gives to the Apostle Paul, is the opportunity to bring that message that Christ has won the battle. And when he talks about this gift and the end and the purpose of this gift is to bring about the obedience of faith, we see that this is a message that's not just meant to be, oh, I'm saved. It's a message of power that when it's received by faith, that Christ is indeed Lord of all, that he is my Lord, and a response of repentance and faith in him. Christ brings the grace into our lives and the power of his death and resurrection into our lives that removes the rule of sin and death in our lives that unites us with him and that enables us to be the children of God. Children who are able and have the power to obey God by faith, to live victoriously, to live and walk with Christ as his people. Now, as we think about our lives, as I think of my life, and the areas that I struggle, struggle, okay, to be a gracious and gospel father to my now starting to be teenage sons, right? They've outstripped my capacity. I might have done a middling job when they were five and six. Now that they're 10 and 12, I'm a little bit behind the eight ball. You need to pray for me. And I look at this and say, okay, what does the gospel mean to me? Am I going to try to the best of my abilities to be the best father I can possibly be and to try and Bring these guys under control and then make a go of it and make sure that they have a good life? Or am I going to receive the good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? He alone has conquered sin and death. He lives and he is present. He is willing and he is able to be Lord of my life and Lord of my parenting. He is able to bring forgiveness to the many areas that I fall short and fail. He is able to bring sanctification to the power of the spirit and his word to teach me how to be a good father like my heavenly father, to be a good discipler and a gracious king like my Lord and Savior. He has given me his word to show me, but he has given me his spirit and his power. He has power to set me free from the desires of my flesh, which is, I just want a perfect life. My kids, as long as they get to a UC school, I'll be okay with that. As long as they're able to pay for the rent and marry a sweet Asian gal, I'll be okay with that. Right now, he's able to set me free from all of those expectations, which sound nice, but you know turns dark. And he's able to set aside my parenthood for the sake of the gospel, that it might not be perfect, and I might not be perfect, but it is a demonstration that there is a love that is eternal from above that transforms lies and shows grace and points us to a king who is a good shepherd to show my sons if by faith they are willing to receive him. They too can have a king who can set them free from the sin and death in their hearts but also in the world around them. What's the remedy for my kids? To bury them someplace so they're not exposed to all the stuff that's out there in the school system and all the LGBTQ and all the wokeness and all of the different things that are there to bury them so that never see, they never see that? No. The power is the good news of Jesus Christ, that in the face of those challenges, they have someone who loves them. In the face of those challenges, they have someone who's present. In the face of those challenges, they have someone who can make it right, most importantly, them and their hearts. And this brings us to the final section, verse seven through 15, the gospel heart. The gospel heart. The gospel has the power to transform who we are It has the power to transform our message. It has the power to transform our mission. And finally, in verse 7 through 15, you see how it transforms our heart. As you read that, you see what Paul's heart is. Paul, who went around and persecuted Christians before. Paul, whose life was devoted to be the most religious and most blameless Jew he could possibly be. Now, his entire heart is how can i encourage these people with the gospel how can i bless them how can they benefit and he's talking about a people he does not many of these folks he hasn't even seen or met he's only heard of i was so convicted when i read this i said how often am i praying not just for ricardo but all the people who are members of his church I may not have seen them, I might not know them, but they're my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm connected with them. How often do I pray, Lord, help this ministry. Lord, help these people I know. Lord, help all the things that I need. And you see the transformation of a gospel heart that God does bit by bit by bit. Why, does he, why is there power to do that? Because he sets us free from our own needs. We don't have to worry about our needs anymore because Christ has that under control. Happens step by step. And he sets us free from the yoke of sin and death so that we can love others as he has loved us. Why? Because of the gospel, plain and simple. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. So, brothers and sisters, this is what Paul is going to unpack, step by step by step, how the gospel transforms every aspect of our life and then how we're called to live it. And as we think about this, let me just hopefully encourage you. There's so much of the gospel that we have yet to know and hope in. The gospel is a good news that is powerful and it brings hope into our lives. The question is, are we willing to receive it? And so what I would encourage all of us to do, I encouraged the men in our small group last night Maybe pick one area in your life that has been hard for you, one area in your life that's been hard for you, typically, when there's an area in our lives that is hard it's not because God is mean, it's because he's yanking our on our cord a little bit and getting our attention and letting us know there's an area that I would like to help you with, and the remedy for that area is the gospel is to learn and it's not oh Jesus is lord, he's Lord of my marriage. It's to come to him and to hear from him how his good news and Christ being Lord of all speaks to that very area that you're being challenged with. It's the power of the message. And maybe put that down as a prayer area and an area that you can meditate on and go to the word and allow Christ to speak to you and show you how he has set you free from sin and death and everything you need to grow in Christ in that particular area he has provided for you in the good news of his word. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, you are the good news. Help us to grow in seeing the extent and the magnitude with which you have loved us, you have conquered us, all that is ugly and evil, and you have set us free. And would you help us, Lord, by your grace and by faith, simply to trust you and to look to you and to meditate on you and to learn from you the way in which your good news changes our lives. Thank you for this. In your name we pray, amen.